Okay. You're gonna have to get more awkward because. No, I think I like this side better actually. Okay. Yeah. Well, good because my and like now I can. My mic is on this, this side, and if I'm that side, it'll bounce off of this. That's what they tell me in the back. Okay. So um, I had to clean my ears out for a minute because <clears throat> I misunderstood what Jacob said when he was talking about D groups. When he talked about you know how awesome it is the accountability, <laughs> and when he said you get to share burden with each other. I heard him say, you get to share bourbon with each other. And I thought to myself, I, mean, depending on the I need D a different group. D group. <laughs> if you heard him say bourbon, he didn't. He said, share burden with each other, not share bourbon with each other. So, so. now I'm questioning what you and Pam have been doing on your sabbatical. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to talk about, right? It is. And let me just start by saying, Trent, first of all, I can't tell you how happy I am to have you back on the stage. Uh, we are all so happy that you and Pam had this time away. And let me start by saying on behalf of the body and the other ZCC elders, thank you for trusting us during this time to keep things going and growing while you were away because I know that wasn't easy for you. Sure. So, thank you. You're very welcome. So, why don't you give us just a little overview? How do you feel your time went? How did it affect you? What did you learn? What was your focus on? Yeah. It's a lot of questions. A lot of works. questions. Yeah, so, so again, some of this will be a little bit of a repeat because um, you, some of you have heard me say this even since we've been back. Um, you heard me say this before we left. Um, I, I, you know, again, this time over these next few weeks, I'm going to try not to be repetitive. I, I'm, that's why I want to share just a little bit of our journey each week. But I think the first thing that, Zion, you need to know and be reminded of is that Pam and I didn't go on a sabbatical because we needed a sabbatical. We didn't leave um, for this season because we were emotionally exhausted because we were wrestling with our calling uh, to be here at Zion. Um, none of those things were true or are true um, about the why behind the sabbatical. It wasn't because we just had to get out of, you know, get out of town for a little bit, which is actually, I think, the best time to date to take a sabbatical. Um, Likewise, what I want you to hear me say is we do not take what we were able to experience for granted. We do not take it lightly. There are not a lot of pastors, um, there's not a lot of people, period, who have the opportunity to step away from their responsibilities for that amount of time, okay? So the, the fact that we could for nine weeks um, kind of set aside the, the daily responsibilities of leading and shepherding uh, this church family was and is a gift that we will always, always, always cherish. And so we, you know, we, are, we are grateful for that. Um, as well, you heard me say this, one of the reasons why we could step away and felt like this was the right time is because you have great men leading uh, Zion and Matt and Jacob and Angelo and knew that they would um, again um, do what they've been tasked to do, to do which is to shepherd and lead and care for and oversee uh, this church family which they did well 
likewise, the maturity of this church family. Uh, I knew um, that there were people uh, in place in, in, in ministry and in leadership who would just continue to do what you do, and that serve and help and minister uh, to folks. And so we, we left, and, and, and this is not lip service. We weren't worried one bit about what was going to happen here. As a matter of fact, what we thought would happen, I believe happened, and that is Zion got better as a church family. And, and better, that's one of those like, can you say that about a church? Maybe there are better words for that, but I think that Zion is a better church family. You are better off as a church having us step away um, for, you know, for this extended period of time, which is pretty self-evident. Some of you can say, yeah, absolutely, and here's why. Some of you might need to be kind of like, hey, here's why, and here's why. And like, oh, I, I see it, but, but I, I'm convinced that, that Zion is better for it and that we as a church family will, um, again, I, I, I want to be careful with my words, we will reap the benefits. There will be fruit that we will be able to see in the coming weeks and months, and I pray for years, um, that can be attributed to what we all experienced during the last couple of months. And I, I, don't, I don't think I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to speak in hyperbole or overstate it. I really believe that. And, and we can talk, you know, uh, again, offline about the whys of that. Some will, will come out. But so when we stepped into the sabbatical, um, I, you know, I'll say this. We had plenty of rest. We made lots of memories, we ate lots of good food, spent plenty of time sitting at the beach and plenty of time sitting at a pool, plenty of time sightseeing and doing the things that we intended to do. But that wasn't the stated purpose of the sabbatical. The stated purpose of the sabbatical was to be encouraged and refreshed in our walk with Jesus. And what that looked like for us was um, extended times in prayer, um, to, to not be rushed and hurried and not have something that you had to get to um, quickly in your day gave us the opportunity to, to spend more time praying. Uh, Pam and I, again, when we would walk uh, in the mornings, and, and we had, you know, not every day did we, you know, go on a, on a long walk, but, but we did quite a bit. Um, we could just pray and, and not, um, not have to worry about what was going on that day. We could just pray for each other, pray for our family, pray for you, and just be with God. Uh, extended time uh, reading. Uh, first and foremost, reading the scriptures. And, and we had a, had a plan for that. And, and Pam and I had a plan for uh, reading through the Psalms together while we were away. And we were able to do that. Um, but beyond reading to the, the, the scriptures, you know, we took a handful of books that we wanted to, to work through. And we're able to, to do that. I listened to lots of sermons. Um, from, from pastors and people that, that I enjoy, that I, uh, I like to listen to. Um, but but um, you know, one of the most spiritual things that happened um, during our time away, and, and, and I don't, again, um, was just getting to spend time with my wife. And um, again, it's a gift. Couples, I, I get it. Like, you're like, I wish I could have nine weeks of under, like, I get it. <laughs> But the gift of being able just to, to not, you know, sounds not corny, but whatever, not leave her presence for nine weeks with a few shopping trips excluded. Um, 
uh, we all was, definitely agree. Pam is amazing. She is amazing. Yes, she is. Yes. <clears throat> so God, God used you know our time together talking and reflecting and <clears throat> crying at times and and remembering things and and then looking forward to things to to, to things and and uh, it was it was it was it was great and so. Um, God used all those things, but, but today I just want to hone in on, on one thing in particular, and that's a book uh, that I read. Like I said, we read lots of books, uh, and we read, obviously, we read the scriptures, but one, one of the books that I chose to read uh, during our time away was a book by an author named Sky Jatani. Uh, he's a former pastor. Uh, now he, he does a podcast, and he writes books and still speaks. Um, uh, but I, he's just a guy that I've grown to appreciate over the last several years. And so he wrote a book. It actually was, goes, dates back to like 2011 called With. And the, the premise of the book is really about our posture toward God, how we relate to God. And it, to be honest, it jumped out at me because I like him as an author, first and foremost. And I heard him speaking and he shared a little bit from the book. I'm like, I should read that book on, on, on sabbatical. But really what <clears throat> the book became for me is it became an opportunity to um, push past the temptation to think about you all as you relate to God and think about myself. And, and that's what I really tried to do is, okay, as he unpacks this book, how, what is my relationship posture toward God? And he, he goes through and, and he, um, he begins to unpack four postures that most of us can relate to as we think about our relationship with God, all of which he says aren't really the, what God wants. And then he gets to a fifth posture that, um, that he would say, and, and I would agree, this is the kind of posture that God wants us to, to have as we think about our relationship with him. So, Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about those different postures? Well, thanks for asking, Jacob. I appreciate that. It's almost like we have this plan. It's almost like we've talked about this. Because <clears throat> we don't want, I, I, again, I, I, I want to make sure that you get the word of God and we, we get some teaching in here. So this is how we're going to do that. So <clears throat> he unpacks these different postures and he has these little simple illustrations to help us. But the first posture that Sky in this book talks about is life under God. Life under God. So it looks like that. Right? And you might say, well, th- what's wrong with life under God? I thought God is, you know, our authority and we live life you know, in subjection to God and we live, you know, under his authority. I, I thought that's how we're supposed to live. Well, <clears throat> as, the, as he unpacks the teaching, um, he, really, he really begins to point out something that I think a lot of us believe when we think about life under God, and that's this. Um, we believe that this life is a cause and effect life. And what do I mean by that? we begin to think that, well, I obey God and God blesses me. That's life under God. I'm going to choose to live my life in obedience to God. I'm going to follow his word. I'm going to follow his moral laws. I'm going to submit to him, but I expect him to do something for me in return. I expect him 
to bless me. And, you know, John, John 9, the story of the, the blind man kind of illustrates that. When the disciples came to Jesus one time and said, Hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because in, in the ancient mind, in the thinking of that day, was if good things happen to you, it's because you're obedient to God. And the opposite would have been true. If bad things happen to you, it's because you're being disobedient to God. You see it in another time when Jesus talked about the rich man, right? In, in, the, in the ancient mind, in Jesus's day, if you saw a wealthy person, the automatic assumption was they must be doing everything right because look at how God is blessing them. God is blessing them. So they must be good, moral, upstanding people, right? Jesus also, again, talked about, uh, talked about this when he, when he was going after the, uh, the Pharisees. And, and he talked about them heaping all kinds of burdens and rules on other people, that in doing so, that somehow they would be blessed by God. And so if you, if you take the time to just really think about how Jesus taught and what we see in the scriptures, this life under God posture really becomes a mix between pagan superstition, I'm trying to appease the gods, and biblical morality. I'm trying to be a moral person. Um, and again, when you think about it, life under God, this posture, really, and we would never see it this way, and I never thought about it this way, but it's our attempt to control God. We're trying to control God and overthrow God by manipulating God into blessing us because I've done my part, God. Now you have to do your part. Um, <clears throat> for me, I know what that looks like. I grew up in this kind of mentality, right? You work really hard at being good, and, 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 and if we're not careful, we can begin to think God, I've done all of this for you. Now it's your turn to do something for me. Uh, I'll be honest with you. During the, those hard years here at Zion, I wrestled with that. God, I'm doing everything right. I've been faithful to you, and I've followed you, and I've tried to like, but, but God, you, why are you allowing this to happen? You know, I tried to manipulate God, and so I, I had to repent of the fact that that, that has been at times, a posture that I have had, uh, you know, uh, in my, my relationship with God, that I've, I've thought, well, God, I'm doing all these things, now I expect something from you. Now, again, here's a word of caution, and, the, from, and he talks about this in the book, is that <clears throat> God's moral instructions, the things that we see in the Bible, they're not bad, right? But it's easy to slip from like trying to follow the scriptures to a, 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 a life of just moralism where we're living out certain morals becomes the God that we worship. The truth of the matter is you can follow God's moral laws without God. You, you can attempt to follow God's moral laws without God and that's not a posture that he wants us to have. And we really, it's summed up with <clears throat> Isaiah's words. If you remember <clears throat> when Isaiah said this, he said, these people, talking about Israel, come near me with their mouth 
and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules that have been taught. And that's what life under God is, is really about. It's, it's about the appearance rather than, than the heart. Yeah, that's good. Um, <clears throat> definitely one that I struggle with probably just, I mean, we have a similar background with our faith, so I think... It, it's hard to let go of that. Yeah, for sure. Well, if there's life under God, then I'm assuming there must be a life over God. Well, there is. There's a life over God, and it looks like that. Now, the ease, and, and in the book, and, and again, here is the book. Again, I highly recommend it. As a matter of fact, I'm probably going to encourage all D groups to go through this at some point in time, maybe in 2024. 2023 is kind of filled up already. But <clears throat> it's easy to say, well, of course, that's the pagan, life over God. This is the, the person who doesn't want anything to do with God. It's the atheist. It's the, the person who's just kind of going out and doing their own thing. And and, and again, I think there's obviously truth to that. There are plenty of people who choose life over God. But when you begin to bring it into our world as the church, as Christians, uh, kind of where, where we live, <clears throat> this is the posture where we lose the wonder and mystery of God in favor of um, proven formulas and principles that we think have controllable controllable outcomes. We like to control things. We like to control things. And again, all of these postures at the root are really about trying to control God. Uh, right? And so the, the difference with this posture is this posture kind of tends to say, okay, I'm going to look at the Bible as, uh, as my instruction manual for life. I'm going to look for principles. I'm going to look for um, uh, uh, ideas in the Bible that I can go, you know what, if I'll just do these things, everything will, will turn out okay. And, and instead of seeing the Bible as a window that helps us to see God and, or as a mirror that causes us to see ourselves, we just begin to look to the Bible for practical help. Again, um, taken to the extreme, this is where you, you begin to hear pastors, preachers, books that say things like, here are five secrets to a great marriage. Here are three, you know, solutions to problem kids. Here's, if you want great finances, here's seven biblical principles to follow, right? And if you'll just follow these biblical principles, then you'll be wealthy. And, and again, it takes the mystery, it takes the wonder out of God, and it reduces God to, like, controllable outcomes. If I do this, God will do, God will do this. Um, again, and that happens into, in churches as much as it happens with pagans. And, and again, I don't want to go into too much of this, but, but uh, it took a long time for this thinking to seep into churches. Um, in the past, years ago, if you got sick, you used to go to the church and have them pray, right? Now, um, what do you do when you get sick? We look at medicine. Um, at the root of this posture, it's still about control. Again, 
simplifying life to formulas and principles. And in a sense, it cuts out the middleman. Who's the middleman? Well, in this posture, God is the middleman. God, I don't need you. I'm just going to follow these formulas. I'm going to follow these principles. Um, Okay, so Trent, have you ever been guilty of that? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, and here's the honest confession, a lot of the way I've based my ministry in years past, if I'm being blunt and honest, is what we've done. It's what I've done. God, we're doing all of the things the books tell us to do. Why aren't we growing? We, we went to the conferences, and the conferences said, grow your church by doing these five things on social media. What you need to do is you need to do this in your community, and you need to do this and this and this. And we're like, okay, great, let's do this. Let's do this. Hey, come back with this, this idea and that idea, and let's try this, and let's do this, right? And, and, and you know what? You can tend to forget in all of those things. You forget God. But we're doing all of these formulas and tricks and tips. And, and for me, again, that's what the church growth movement, I think, produced, is Christians who just want to reduce everything to a principle and a formula. Again, that's not to say, here's a caution with that, that we shouldn't have a plan or develop a strategy or seek to create the right kind of environment. But we must remember life over God is still an attempt to control them or control, control him. I think the biblical, I think there's a biblical story that kind of helps illustrate this. If you remember in the Old Testament, Moses, you guys know who Moses was? The children of Israel out of, the, or out of bondage into the promised land. When God sent him to Pharaoh, Moses had a, had a staff, right? And it was a staff that he threw on the ground and it became a snake. God used the staff to get uh, Pharaoh's attention. Late, later, when they were getting ready to cross the, uh, the Red Sea, what did Moses do? He rose the staff in the air and it parted the waters. God, God used the staff to part the sea so that Israel could, could escape Pharaoh. Uh, a little bit later on, the, there was no water in the, uh, in the, uh, for, the, for the children of Israel to, to drink and so God said, take your staff and hit the rock. And so he hits the rock and water comes out. Fast forward to Numbers 20, they're in the same predicament. Children of Israel aren't able to get any water. They're thirsty. They're complaining to Moses, like we've got nothing to drink. And so Moses goes and communes with God. And God says to Moses, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak to the rock and water will flow. Anybody know what Moses did instead? He hit it. And we look at that story, and we've always thought that story is about anger. I don't think that's the case. I think Moses was guilty of following proven principles, formulas, and strategies that had worked for him in the past instead of trusting and communing with God and, and, and hearing his voice in the present. M- Moses, and we don't know this, but Moses may have thought, well, God, you've always used my staff as, as this kind of symbol for doing something miraculous. I know you told me 
to just speak to the rock, but certainly what you meant to say was to use my staff, just like you had done in the past, a proven principle, a proven formula, and do it again. And it cost Moses. God, God sent water, but Moses was now, because he wasn't obedient to the voice of God, he wasn't able to go in the promised land himself. And I think that story illustrates a life over God. I'm going to just go with what I know instead of trusting the voice of God. And I've been guilty of that, thinking that God will always act in a certain way if we do certain things. That's what life of God or life over God tends to do. That's life over God. Well, so life over God is clearly not the posture we want. Nope. Uh, What's the next one we should be aware of? The next one is life from God. Not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but this is the life that, again, we, we would, I'm not sure that anybody would readily raise their hand and say, that's me. But if you examine your own heart, you would find that this is the posture that we often default to when it comes to our relationship with God. This is the life that says, I want God's blessing but not God himself. I want what he'll do for me. I like that part of God, but I really don't want God himself. And again, the illustration is in Luke 15, the prodigal son, right? He wanted his, he wanted his dad's inheritance, but he didn't want a relationship with his father. All right, there's, a, there's the picture there. And, in, and, in, and when you think about the view of God that we have in all the different postures, the, the under God view is that God is this angry deity who has to be appeased. The over God view of God is that, that he is this rational, hands-off deity, that he has just kind of put principles in the into the, into the universe, into the cosmos in place. And as long as we follow those principles, everything will work out just fine. The, the from posture, that posture is a combination of seeing God as a divine butler, right? He's our divine butler or he's our cosmic therapist. This is a classic view that a lot of us have toward God. Voltaire once said, if God made us in his image, we have returned the favor. Ouch. That that the American consumeristic mentality that we have adopted as a nation, we are a nation of consumers. That is who we are. We've made God into that same image. That, That God is a good that is to be consumed for my benefit. It believes that, Pasha believes that God exists to supply what we need and what we desire. Here's a caution. Let's not forget this. That that posture, there is a, there is a truth in it. As a matter of fact, in all of the postures, there are truths in all of the postures. Under, over, from God, there's a truth to this. We know that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift that he is, as we sing, a good, good father, right? We are invited to call on God in our time of need, right? This, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about the, the totality of how we relate to God sees God as our butler or as our therapist. God, I just need you to give me what I need. 
and then I'll just be about my business. Now, again, um, of all the postures, this is the one that I, I look at myself and I go, I don't want to admit that that's me, but that is me. Because I know that I'm guilty far too often of doing what I do because I still want something. That I, I want something from God. And the something that I want from God might have over the years changed, but it's still that posture of like I want something from him more than I just want him. And one of the worst things about this posture, it offers no explanation for suffering or pain in the world. When things go bad, this posture has no explanation. Because if God is just supposed to give us everything that we want and everything we need, when things go bad, we're left with no explanation for it. Yeah, that's good. Um, Especially that that part about the truth, because that's what makes it so, that's what draws you in, right? That one truth that's in it draws you in, and then you find yourself in this wrong posture with God. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I feel like most people need an explanation for pain and suffering in life. I, for me, like, faith wouldn't make sense if I didn't have that explanation. Yeah, for that why posture that's still, doesn't give it. Yeah, it doesn't give me, give me that. Um, people have been looking for that explanation forever. So there's one more posture that we want to avoid. Yeah, one more posture to avoid, and that is life for God. Which again, that doesn't, doesn't that sound, sound bad? That doesn't, doesn't sound bad. Life okay. for God. How many of you want to live your life for God? Woo! And that language, and again, when we when we use that language, we, we don't need to start you know calling each other out on the carpet for it. Mm-hmm. But when we use that language, we should slow down and go. Wait a second. When I say that, what do I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Like, is this the totality, totality of how I'm trying to relate to God? That I just want to live life for God. This is the posture that says the best life is one lived accomplishing great things in service to God. That we should live trying to accomplish great things in service to God. This is the older brother in the story of the prodigal. When he got upset, when his daddy threw a party for the younger, younger uh, brother when he came home, he went to his dad and was like, Dad, I've, I've lived here all my life. I've, I've done nothing but serve you. I've been faithful to you. And now you go out and throw a party for him mm-hmm. after what he did? Th- this is the posture that believes that at the center of the universe is the mission of God. The center of the universe is the mission of God. At the center of the universe in the over God um, are our natural laws and principles. At the center of the universe in the under God is, is an angry God. And at the center of the, the universe in the from God posture is you. You're the center of the universe, right? And so in the for God, or the for God, at the center of the universe is this this idea of mission, that that is the center of the cosmos, is the mission of God. Now again, um, there is obviously truth and value in living our life for God and living for his mission, but taken to an extreme, it leads to another form of idolatry and leads us to, other, leads us to overlook other aspects of being a, a disciple. 
God's mission, we talk about this a lot, I believe can dominate our lives, but it should never define our life. It should never define our life. And here's my, this, is, this was the convicting part, the most convicting part of the book for me. And it, this is the posture that I had to repent the most from personally is because far too often I have been motivated by this posture. God, I just want to do great things for you. I want to do great things for the kingdom. I want, I want to see this. I want to accomplish this. I, I want to go here. I want to do this. And I'm, I want to do it for you. But where I've had to repent of is I've let that thought define me. And guess what's happened over the last several years here at Zion? As the perception has been, God ain't doing nothing there. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Zion ain't what it used to be. Right? Thank God Zion's <laughs> not what it used to be. Uh, did I say that out loud? I did. Amen. And I said that out loud, and I will continue. I will, from this point on in my life, say, thank God Zion is not what it used to be. And, and I won't apologize for that. Um, but it defined me. Life for God is what defined me as a pastor. And I repent of that. I repent of that privately, and I repent of that publicly with and to you. That I don't want to be defined as a pastor who's... who's Identity is wrapped in what he accomplishes for God. That doesn't mean that I don't have dreams. doesn't mean that I have, you know, things that I want. But it, it's not going to define me. It, it, there's something else, right? Uh, Paul's words, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. Nothing else mattered to Paul. All of the accomplishments, all the churches planted, all of the, the things that he did as a, as, a, as, a, as a missionary didn't matter. One hill of beans when it came to his desire to know Christ. And again, we, when we think about this, this life for God, there's this huge danger in living our life for God. You remember Jesus telling the story about a group of people who came to him and was like, Jesus, I've done this for you, I've done this for you, I've done this for you. I've accomplished this, I've accomplished that. I've cast out demons, we've healed the sick, we've done these great things to you. And what was Jesus' words to them? He said, I never knew you. Depart from me. Depart from me, I never knew you. And you look at that and go, but, but they did great things for God. And this comes back to, again, one of the, the convicting things that I think we all need to wrestle with. You can do great things for God without God. I, I, I've seen it. I've witnessed it. Truth be told, I've been a part of it. And, and that's not it. It can't be it for us anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Depart from me, I never knew you. Words that gave me literal nightmares for most of my teenage years. Um. And, and again, I think pastors use that to scare people into, yeah, you know, whatever. But, but, but it's there for a reason. And I think the, the biggest reason is Jesus wants us to know that there is a life that can be lived that accomplishes things 
for God that really aren't God. Yeah. It's possible. So when we come to the posture that we then should aim for, right, the preposition that is the title of the book, with. So what does it look like for us to live with God? Well, read the book and find out. How's that for a cliffhanger? Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> life, life with God basically says this. And, and we hear it and we're like, well, duh, right? But, but the, the piece for me is like, I had to be honest and go, like, I don't know that this is my posture all the time. But the, the life with God posture says this, that we do not seek to use God to achieve another goal. God is the goal. God becomes our treasure. God becomes our desire. The, the, the Christian life becomes like a treasure hunt where the treasure is easily found. God is not playing hide and go seek. He said, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. We, we don't have to go across the miles Climbing hills and valleys, getting on, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles to somehow find this treasure that is God himself. All we have to do, and I say all we have to do, I'm, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, is, is our posture needs to change to become, God, I just want you. I just want to be with you. I want to experience you. I want to know you. I want to be trained, tra transformed, and changed by you. Uh, I'll read this piece of the, of the book, page 101. In the book, I made a note here. It says this. <clears throat> the life with God posture is predicated on the view that relationship is at the core of the cosmos. Remember what I said? How those other views have something different at the very core of the cosmos? God the Father, here's the core of the cosmos, the core of the universe of a, God, of a life with God posture. It's this, that God the Father with God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. That the very center of the cosmos is God himself in perfect relationship with himself in the form of the Trinity, right? And so we should not be surprised to discover that when God desired to restore his broken relationship with people, he sent his Son to dwell with us. His plan to restore his creation was not to send a list of rules and rituals to follow. That's life under God. Nor was it the implementation of useful principles, life over God. He did not send a, gent a genie to grant us our desires. That's life from God. He did not send a, he, nor did he give us a task to accomplish. That's life for God. Instead, God himself came to be with us. To walk with us once again as he had done in Eden in the beginning. Jesus entered into our dark existence to share our broken world and to illuminate a different way forward. His coming was a sudden and glorious catastrophe of good. It's the story in Matthew 13 where he talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a treasure where when a guy stumbled upon it, he sold everything that he had to buy the land so that he could have the treasure that he found in that land. That, that's the posture that, that we begin to think and say to ourselves that he, God, is the treasure of my life. What, what is the treasure of your life? 
What is the treasure? What would you, what would you give up everything to possess, to have, to hold, to know, to experience? That's, that's the, the posture of a life with God. It's like the kid who has a vision of buying a Mustang. He begins to treasure this Mustang. It's, it's a vision in his head. I, I want this Mustang. But that doesn't mean anything until he actually purchases the Mustang and is united with it. And, and, and being united with it still isn't enough. It's not until he gets in it and begins to drive it does he experience the Mustang. And he uses this illustration, and he admits that's a pretty simple, crude analogy. But, but when it comes to being with God in this posture, it begins with, I, I treasure him. I want him more than anything else. And then I've got to be united with him. That, that's, and, and those of us who've accepted Christ, we've put our faith in Christ, we have been united with him. We've been reconciled to him through the blood of, of Jesus, right? And, and it's only once we, tre- as we treasure him and are united with him, do we begin to have the opportunity to experience who he is. And, and that becomes a setup for where we're going this fall. I, I want us as a church family to learn what it looks like to be able to experience life with God. Not under God, over God, from God, or even for God, but life with God. And the good news is, we can all experience life with God. I read in a different book this summer that individual renewal happens before corporate transformation. And I don't want to overstate this because it's, it's one of those like, when you come home from summer camp, what did God do? And, you know, the kids come home and they're crying and, oh, God's going to, I'm going to. And I'm not minimizing that. And that's not m- me in this moment. But I can say with all the certainty um, that I have, that our time away has been renewing and transformative for Pam and I personally. And, and I pray that in the days and weeks to come, that, that even just a little bit of, of how we're able to unpack and share and talk, that, that it would help us move toward a, a corporate renewal, a corporate transformation, where we can all uh, be changed um, by by God and experience uh, this, this posture, life with God. Becca's laughing. So, something's funny. The, the, and this is, and I, and I wish I could unpack more of this, maybe I'll touch on it next week, but this is more than just prayer, it's about communion, mm. right? Life with God is more than just having your prayer time, it, it's about learning what it looks like to communion or to commune with God all the time. Again, we, we, nine weeks, walking in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means that you're actually doing things, right? You're, you're communing with God through your day. You're walking in the Spirit. It's what Paul talked about when he says, pray without ceasing. We know that you're not going to be able to be on your hands and knees praying all day, every day, but you can learn to commune with God so that your inner thoughts are with God. And that those thoughts of, of withness toward God, our posture really becomes our prayers as we're leading and serving and working and, 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 and doing whatever it's studying, whatever it is that we're doing, we're doing it all in communion with God. And that's where renewal and transformation, I believe, can and does happen. And it's happening 
uh, in my life, and I pray that it would continue. And that's all I got to say today. Amen. Good. Yeah, we didn't, invite, we didn't invite the worship team to come up, so worship team, to, come on up. They need to do that. Um, and you're like, we need that was that a lot for one day. That was a lot for one day because just we wait till said, next week. It was like we were planning for 20 minutes, and it's 11:42. We're going outside right now. We we're going to sing one song, we're gonna, and then we're, we're going to go sing eat. one song. We're going down both sides of the table today. Yes. To get our food. Efficiency. Efficiency. Um, and before we go out. Angelo is going to pray blessing over the food so we don't have to worry about that when we get out there. Uh, we'll take that moment in here together, and then we can just enjoy food and fellowship outside. Excellent. Let me just give a shout-out to our campus care team. Uh, coming back onto the, the property, uh, seeing all the things that have been done around the building is a, was a huge blessing. And I know that if you were to talk to any of, the, any of the folks around that campus care team, they would say there's always room for more. And I appreciate kind of the ownership that they've taken uh, on some of the things that, that have needed to be done and are now being done uh, here at the building. So, Amen. All right. You guys want to sing a song? Do you want me to help you? You don't want me no, to you help don't. you.
Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we praise your name. We thank you for just